My name's Charlie. I am uh, one of the ministers here, and it is great to be with you. And we are on our last sermon series looking at the book of John and our series, Love One Another. That is, uh, next week, we're going to turn our attention to Advent and the roll up to Christmas. Now, I have to say, we've gone through the book of John, 1 John quite quickly over the last few weeks. We could have spent a very long time getting into all of the detail of 1 John. But instead, I hope that we have given you some of the broad themes, some of the big pictures, some of the messages and some of the context of what John is trying to get into. Particularly this idea that love is central to how we understand God and how we live together as a community. That God is love and we are called, therefore, to love one another. And we come to his closing remarks today. We come to the final section. And I have to say, if you were listening to that reading carefully, it's not John at his clearest. In fact, John can be quite muddled at times anyway. And I don't think he was on fine form when he wrote this. In fact, the letter to me feels like it comes to quite an abrupt ending. Although that perhaps rings of authenticity, We have no idea what was going on in John's life or in the community's life, why this letter should come to an end like it does. But it's what we've got. And the first few verses in particular cause some challenges. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin, however, that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Thanks, John. I'm really grateful about that. Which immediately begs the question, what is the sin that leads to death? And I, I can give you the, the result of all my scholarly study, and all of the uh, commentaries that I looked into, and all the research I was able to do, and the truth is, We don't know. Now, I know that's not particularly helpful, but we just sometimes have to accept that the Bible does this. Um, This definitely meant something to John's community, to the Johannine church, to the church that had John's gospel as their primary source. They would have had some sense of perhaps what John was talking about. But the sad thing is we don't. And scholars have spent a long time, and it's kept academics in jobs, trying to work out what this is. And there are lots of theories and lots of ideas. But the general consensus is no one can be certain. And we have to live with that. We don't quite know what John was talking about. Now, I could spend the entire rest of this morning going through the various theories, but it wouldn't really get us anywhere. And we'd end up with the same conclusion at the end. That is, we don't really know. So with your permission, I want to acknowledge that section and move on to some stuff that we do know that I think will be helpful for us this morning. And that is verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. One of the things, one of the jobs that Jesus does, one of the things that Jesus does through his life, his incarnation, is to bring us understanding, to help us understand who God is. And what God is like to help us to understand. 
What do we mean when we talk about understanding? Well, it's to take something that is confusing and to make it clear. To help us get from confusion to clarity. Or to take something that's incredibly complex and to make it simple so that we can understand it. But there is another element to understanding, and that is to correct misunderstanding. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I make false assumptions. There are errors in my thinking. I know that's hard for you to believe, but there are from time to time errors in my thinking. And what to bring understanding is to correct those misunderstandings. That's how we learn. As children, we learn by making mistakes, by making false assumptions, by testing them, by finding them out, by correcting misunderstanding. Which circle, which orange dot is bigger? The one on the left or the one on the right? It is the one on the right, isn't it? You look at it, it's bigger. Okay, you've all jumped ahead of me because you've all seen this before. I tell you, I'm looking at that and that looks bigger to me. It looks bigger to me. But of course you all know, don't you? That the dots are exactly the same size. The right hand dot is bigger, that is true. Is it not? No. It needed correcting. What about if I tell you all of the horizontal lines are parallel? They are. All of them are perfectly parallel. So are these diagonal lines. They are parallel. I promise because I got a ruler out on the screen of my computer the other day and I was doing this. <laughs> we sometimes live with illusions that need correcting. And actually, I want to give you an example from Jesus' life of a, of a place where he brings correction to misunderstanding. You see, the Jews have these, the, the Jewish community have these laws. And one of them, perhaps the most important, central in, within the Ten Commandments, is this idea to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Exodus 20, six days you shall labor and do all your work, and on the, and, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is a day you are to rest and quite simply to do no work. The Jewish Sabbath is a Saturday. So a simple definition of observing the Sabbath is to do no work on a Saturday. Seems straightforward enough, doesn't it? Except when you think about what is work. What defines work? Now, um, I'd quite like to go for a run on my day off. Some of you might consider that to be very hard work. So is that work on your day off or not? So there has grown up within a Jewish culture and Jewish life, right back from the earliest days of Jewish religion, this discussion about what makes work. And here are a few, just a few examples. 
The, um, the accepted rabbinical definition of work is generative endeavours. So on the Sabbath, you're to do no generative endeavours. No changes to the environment or any object, which also includes no food prep, no lifting things, no lighting fires. And in some ultra-Orthodox Jewish cultures, that includes pressing a button on, a raid, on an elevator. So you have to take the stairs. No walking more than half a mile. You see, all these laws begin to appear about how do we try to define work and how can we make sure that we don't... Because to break this is to lead to death. So we don't want to lead to death, so we need to make sure we keep this rule. So don't work, so what is work? And there are literally thousands of these rules and exceptions within Orthodox Jewish cultures. Take this example of walking half a mile Yes, this is possibly the most boring picture I've ever put on the screen during church. But this is Hampstead in North London, taken in April 2019. And you probably can't quite see it, but there's a wire there. That wire is known as the Eruv wire. It is the perimeter of the Jewish district in North London. And their interpretation, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in North London have put this wire up to define the perimeter of their locality. Hampstead. Hampstead, yep, David. Because they define walking half a mile as half a mile beyond the perimeter of your community. So you can walk around inside your house, you can walk around within your community, but you can't go further than half a mile beyond it. So all the way around the community, from lamppost to lamppost, is this wire that defines the edge of the community. Seems bonkers to me. But that's the extent that this uh, no working on the Sabbath has been taken to. <laughs> Let me tell you about another discussion that happened in the rabbinic community. It includes no lifting things. There is, believe it or not, a very long discussion in the rabbinic literature about whether that should include your undergarments. Fortunately, they agreed an exception <laughs> that you should be able to lift your undergarments. Now, along comes Jesus. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. Remember, that's forbidden. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And I love Jesus' response because he just cuts through the nonsense. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is the Lord of even the Sabbath. You know, Jesus is taking this religious, these religious rules, this complexity that they were all having to live under, and he is cutting right to the chase. And I, 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 I you know, my paraphrase would be, just drop the nonsense. You're tying people up in religious rules. This is not what it is about, people. He is correcting their misunderstanding. So we know that Jesus has come to give us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Him who is true is an interesting phrase. Um, most, of us, most scholars think that him who is true is a phrase that John is using for God. 
so that we may know him who is true, that we may know God. And it's interesting, we haven't really got into it studying 1 John, but there is, there is a long discussion about what John means when he says true and what he means when he says real. I haven't got into it because it's quite philosophical and it's quite dense. But let me give you a quick example. We think of one and one. One plus one equals two as true, do we not? We think of this lectern, which I've just poured water all over, Sorry. We think of this lectern as real. But in John's mind and culture, those two ideas were quite interchangeable. What is true and what is real are interchangeable ideas. So God is true because God is real. These are interchangeable ideas for him. So when he says to know the one who is true, him who is true, God He's kind of saying, if we translate it into what we might understand, the God who is real. So the Son of God has come to give us understanding, to remove our misunderstandings, so that we may know the God who is real. Are you with me so far? That we may know. How do we know anything? How do we know? Well, you know, there is intellectual knowledge. We gather information. There are mathematical proofs. There are things that we know to be true in our heads and in our minds. And they may be things that we've never experienced, but we've gathered enough information and we, we know intellectually that they are true. But there is another form of knowing, and that is to experience something. And that is the type of knowing that John is pointing to. He says, we should know the God who is real by experiencing him. That is how we know who God is. We experience God. Not just an intellectual idea, not just thinking things and knowing truths about God and doctrines and having all our theological ducks lined up in a row. That's a form of knowledge, but it's not the knowledge that John is talking about. John is talking about that we should know God through experience. That we should know God is real because we should experience him. This famous gentleman once said, information is not knowledge. The only source of knowledge is experience. And John would agree. How do we know we know by experiencing You see, John is a mystic. In all religions, there's perhaps this continuum and there's kind of the fundamentalist branch on one end, a lot about rules, a lot about laws, a lot about how you behave. And then there's this kind of mystical end to religions, which is about how you experience and encounter God and an everyday sense of God's presence and experience. John absolutely lives at this end of the religious experience. And he wants us to know God, to love God, because God is real and we can experience him in our lives. This is what John wants. He wants his church to experience God and therefore to know the reality of who God is. How? 
he goes on, and we are in him that is in God by being in his son, Jesus Christ, because he is the true God and eternal life. John is saying this is reality, this is true. Jesus came to bring understanding, to dispel the illusions, to get rid of the religiosity so that we can experience God. And we experience God by being in Christ. Because to be in Christ and to love God and to abide in him is to have eternal life. And you remember eternal life is not so much about life after death. It's about a different quality of life now. A life that is not shaken by the vagaries and ups and downs of life, but a life that is grounded and rooted and sourced in God himself, in God's self. And we find that by abiding in Christ, by experiencing God in him. That is what John wants his community to know and to live into. How can I be in Christ? How can I become a Christian? I would suggest you wake up to the presence of God. The presence of God is all around us. God is through all things and sustains all things by his spirit. We wake up to the presence of God in reality around us. We turn from our sin and we turn towards God. And then I wish I'd changed this slide that we love God, we love neighbor and we love self. And we try to live out of that place. That's what Jesus said to do, is what Colin alluded to in his prayers today. You acknowledge the reality of who God is, live into the presence of God, turn from sin, turn towards God and live in love with God, neighbor and self. And I can't think of a better definition right now than that. Friends, that's what it means to live in Christ, to become a Christian. How do I start that journey? Well, Maybe it's a simple prayer. Maybe you just grab Andy or I this week for a coffee and say, you know, I'd, I would like to make a commitment. I'd like to make an commitment to, to Christ, to living my life in this way, to experiencing God in Christ. Because that's this rich, eternal life that John wants for you and wants you to know. And then he wraps up. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Don't forget to brush your teeth. <laughs> what? Okay, so on first glance, that seems like a pretty random way to end his letter. But actually, let me just play with the words slightly. Dear children, instead of keep yourself from idols, how about keep yourself from illusions? Keep yourself from those false illusions that take the place of God in your life. Keep yourself from those false gods, those false pathways. Does that all of a sudden fit better with what John has just been saying? Live into the reality of who God is, experience God, and don't get caught up by these illusions that try to take the place of God in your life. And boy, we love our illusions. Let me talk about a few of them. One is a personal one. A few years ago, I got myself exceptionally fit. I did some very long triathlons. Um, 
And for a while, my identity was, hey, I'm this really fit, super fit person, and I can, con you know, I can run miles, and I can, rah. Right now, I can barely run to the end of the street. That was four years ago, and it's amazing how quickly the fitness fades if you don't keep it up. If my worth and my self-identity was based in the illusion that I can run a marathon out the door, well, right now, I can't. So actually, that's a movable, changeable feast. And if I base my self-worth and my identity on that, it is sand, people. It's good. It's good to do. It's great for you. It's great for your mental health. It's great for your physical health. But it's not who I am. And there will come a time, I know, when my body will fail me and I will not be able to do any of the physical endeavours that I currently like to do. If that is my identity, that will be a crisis. Jobs. Your identity is not the illusion of your job. Your job is good, your job is helpful, but your jobs come and, jobs come and go. Companies go bust. There are boom times and there are recessions. And it is possible that post this pandemic, we're heading into another one right now. If your identity is what you do for a living and you lose that job, who are you? That's another illusion. Education. I think we make an idol of education in Seven Oaks. And we can have a conversation about that another day. But it is not who you are. You are not the grades that you get in your exams. These are illusions. You are a beloved child of God. Do you remember John saying that? We are children of God. That is who we are. And as children of God, he wants us to experience this life, this Zoe life, this eternal life, this gift, this reality that exists if, if the storm clouds of life are our health, our wealth, our success, our family. And they, sometimes they're lovely and clear and sometimes they're stormy and turbulent. You can live your life being buffeted around by those clouds. Or you can live life another way with this gift that is to be in Christ, that is to experience and know God, this gift of eternal life, this grounding, this base note to life that is unchanging. And I think that is what God, that, that is what John is getting to in his letter in 1 John. Abide in that, people. Abide in your identity as children in God. Love God, for God is love. Make that our focus. Not these illusions. Let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray. Father God, we so want to live this way. I so want to live this way. Yet I recognise I am pulled left and right by the vagaries of life and by the challenges of life. So 
So God, help me, help us to experience, to know, to live into this reality of living in Christ, living in Christ Jesus. To experience this eternal life that you offer, this Zoe Ionion, this life of the ages, this life that we are promised in some part now, that is not buffeted by the storms of life, that is grounded, that is rooted, that is centered in the identity and promises of a living God. A God who is love. God, as we go into this week, help us to abide there. Lord, thank you for the the, the reminders we've already had this morning about trying to find space in our day to centre and to pray. Lord, help us find those practices in our day that we would ground and root ourselves in you. Be it prayer, be it meditation, be it yoga, however we go about that. Help us to find a place in our day where we can ground and center and be aware of who you are and to live out of that. Live in the presence of God who offers us this gift of eternal life. Lord, help us to find our identity in you, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Uh, we are going to sing again a song. Uh, I should just say, if you would like to pray with somebody after anything we've talked about, if you want to know what it means to become a Christian, um, talked a bit about that today amongst other things. Grab Andy, grab myself, grab Colin. Um, you know, we'd love to chat and pray with you after the service.